Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Good morning, uh, everybody. So good to see you guys. And uh, I got some new faces uh, in the room. And so, man, I hope you had a good breakfast out there. If you missed it, uh, like uh, Liz and Chris mentioned, next week, uh, same time, same place, 10 o'clock. And uh, you can uh, meet some new faces and get plugged in with everything that's going on. Uh, I want to introduce myself. My name is Dan. Um, I get the privilege of being the pastor here and look forward to getting to know you myself a little bit as we kind of mingle around uh, out here. You've got some great group leaders and directors that are going to be invested in your life and get connected with you in so many profound ways over the next few years. We can't wait uh, to see what God does with that. We're kicking off a new series uh, today called The Table. We're going to be in Luke 14 in just a minute, but I thought it would be appropriate uh, with kicking off a new series, school kicking off for everybody uh, to begin with a pop quiz. Y'all ready for a pop quiz? Yeah, y'all are excited about it. That sounds good. Well, it's going to be pretty easy. It's a five-question pop quiz, okay? And I promise you'll know the answer because it's uh, your answer. So we're going to play uh, a quick game of this or that, okay? So what's going to happen is I'm going to mention two things. And what I want you to do is I want you just to, after I read them, I want you to yell out which one you choose, okay? And we're going to kind of survey the crowd uh, and see which one it is. Is it this or it's that. So uh, the first one is this, uh, a simple one. Are you a summer or a winter person? A pretty mixed crowd, pretty mixed crowd in here. Uh, I know the winter crowds right over here because I'm related to them. Uh, they're all tired, <coughs> excuse me, they're all tired of the, of the humidity and all that. It's a pretty mixed crowd on that. Okay, let's see if we can get a little bit more clear um, with the second question. The second question is this, are you a morning person or a night owl? What did you say, Adam? You said yes? I thought you said yes, like I'm both. Yes. That means you don't ever sleep. You're always ready to go. That is you. That is totally you. Uh, you're always ready to go. So it's kind of a mix, right? Uh, let's do it one more time because I was, I was really focused on Adam, let's be honest, like that. All right, so morning person or night owl? Yeah, man, it's pretty, it's pretty mixed on that. Well, this one, this one should clear the deck. This should be uh, pretty, uh, it was in the nine o'clock service. I'll just say this. This was pretty lopsided. Number three. Popeyes or Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A. That was the most unified expression of faith that I've ever heard in a, in a church before. Chick-fil-A. Uh, how many outliers out there? Anybody that just, you're proud to be Popeyes. Anybody? A few of you, right? I mean, they got some good sandwiches. That new spicy chicken sandwich, it's pretty, it's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty good. You like the spicy stuff, you know, it's all right. All right. Uh, fourth, fourth question, and this is going to tell the demographic of the room real quick. TikTok or Instagram? TikTok. TikTok. How many people said, where's Facebook? <laughs> a few of y'all, a few of y'all Facebook fans out there, you're like, man, where is that? I don't even know what TikTok is. Uh, uh, yeah, TikTok, uh, Instagram. I'm Instagram all the way because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm barely on that one. So uh, I haven't made it to TikTok yet. All right, last one. Here we go. This is the test. Red Wolves or Razorbacks? 
There's a few of you in here. I really didn't know which way that was going to go because that's pretty, that's a pretty heated battle. Uh, I think the most unified we were as a congregation was about chicken, okay, out of all the things there was. You know, it, it, pretty easy quiz, right, because you know you. Uh, and it's kind of funny, right, just to kind of nudge each other and be like, oh, yeah, I'm a night person or I'm a morning person, that kind of thing. Or, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not up to date with TikTok or, you know, hey, I, I've got a favorite sports team. And those kind of things do, do distinguish us, identify us. Uh, they establish some boundaries uh, in our life. Uh, this is who I am. This is who I'm not. Uh, and it's kind of fun, you know, just to kind of learn about different people and, and uh, each other uh, and even ourselves sometimes because sometimes we don't even know what we're about until we have to say it out loud. But there's some things that are, are boundaries that are not so frivolous, not so superficial. Uh, they're deeper. And when they become more deeper, they become more divisive. And you see this throughout culture, not just in modern culture today. It's not just a 2021 phenomenon, but this is the story of humankind, that we are very divided people. Uh, we typically uh, construct boundaries around who we are. Uh, this happens with the uh, nations. This happens with people groups. This happens with skin color. This has happened uh, with certain ideologies, uh, all kinds of things where we've constructed around ourselves walls that sometimes seem impenetrable. And from the other side of the wall, we lob grenades at the other people. We try to keep them out and we try to villainize other people. And what ends up happening, the deeper these divisions go, the more divided we become, the more destructive things become. Uh, we fall farther and farther and farther into uh, our own subcultures, if you want to call them that, where we surround ourselves with people that think like us, look like us, have the same socioeconomic class as us. Uh, same background as us, uh, and the world get, keeps falling farther and farther apart. And this is, again, not a new phenomenon, but I believe that what the gospel does is the gospel enters in, and it has something to say about the things that divide us, because the gospel of Jesus has come to offer a new view of a table. And Matter of fact, Jesus got in trouble uh, a lot uh, when he was uh, walking this ground. And a lot of it had to do with a table. It had to do with the people that he shared a table with. As a matter of fact, uh, people started to notice really quick in Jesus's uh, ministry. In chapter seven of the gospel of Luke, he observes this. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, and sinners. There was something distinct and uh, illuminating about not just what Jesus taught, but the places that he went. And what had happened within the first century, uh, by the time you got to Second Temple Judaism, is we saw a reflection or a manifestation of these divisions of boundaries. And what had intended to be perhaps one of the most unifying things, sharing a meal together of laughter and fulfillment and family, had become one of the most uh, demonstrable places of division. The places where certain people couldn't come in and certain people could. Certain people were left out in the cold and ostracized, and certain people were welcome. And this becomes, in Luke's observation of Jesus' life and ministry, one of the central figures and one of the central motifs and themes of his entire telling of the Jesus story. And as a matter of fact, if you trace out the story of uh, Jesus in Luke's gospel, there's two primary places that you're going to see Jesus visiting. 
or have visited. And that's gonna be the synagogue or the table. Matter of fact, with the table, uh, he's usually going to a table, he's at a table, or he's leaving a table. And I believe when Luke tells the story, he's trying to get us to the heart of a deeper truth about ourselves and about God. And I think it all has to do with understanding what the table meant for these ancient folks, because it might mean a little bit different for us on the surface. Matter of fact, for the ancient meal was a very divisive place. Uh, it became a place of established boundary markers of who could and who could not be at certain tables. And there's a few reasons why that was. The first reason was it was used, the table was, to advertise and to reinforce social hierarchies. Um, matter of fact, if you were to eat at a certain table, it was uh, within an honor-shame culture. It was uh, much of what described and dictated the view of people of you, uh, how you were seen socially, what uh, level of the socio, uh, or social structure of the hierarchy, where you found yourself, were you on the bottom rung, were you on the middle, or you were on the upper echelon. And the best way for people to see that, because they didn't have TikTok and they didn't have Instagram, was simply whose table were you at and who was with you at the table. And to make it more uh, distinct or more profound, I will say, it actually had a little bit to do with their rituals. The rituals were, there were rules for ritual purity that became critical at the table. And these had to do with two primary things. The first thing was what you eat. Uh, if you look back into the Old Testament Torah, you'll, you'll find that there was a, a lot of dictates that God had laid out about what they were supposed to eat and how they were supposed to eat it and how they were supposed to prepare it. And by the time you get to Jesus' time, a couple thousand years later, uh, that list had actually grown. As things do over time, uh, they begin to try to understand a little bit of what it meant, but then they begin to impute uh, new limitations, new restrictions, and new rules uh, on people. And so depending on where you were, what you ate, it would come in and defile your body. But it wasn't just about what you ate and what you took in. It was also about who you would eat with. And who you would eat with would say everything about you. Uh, hence, we get uh, the depiction of Jesus, the Son of Man, coming and being said, this is, this is weird, this is wrong, that Jesus, if he is the Son of Man, he's eating with drunkards and gluttons and sinners and tax collectors, the worst of the worst, the outcast, the outsider, the people that usually not be at the table. And to make it even more profound, there was one final thing that I think sets up the story today that keeping Sabbath was an identity marker for a first century Jew. Uh, not so much for us today. We live in a culture where uh, there's questions about what the Sabbath is and Jesus that he has in a final Sabbath and uh, the principle of the Sabbath. But for them, keeping of the Sabbath was a way, just as the table was, to be an identity marker. The Sabbath, what you did or didn't do on the Sabbath would tell the story about who you were. Did you have a devout relationship with God? Were you a part of the family of God? Were you a part of the people of God? And that was uh, uh, in contrast to the other nations and the other people groups around you, because remember, you're supposed to stand out as a holy nation, a, a consecrated people, distinct from all the rest of the nations. And so they would embody all these boundary markers because that's the best way. Sometimes the best way to find yourself is by defining who you're not. And that's often what happens with the church today, is it not? The best way to define us is by saying who we're not. And there's plenty of ways to lob the grenades at everybody else and erect boundaries, construct boundaries around the table 
of God. But when Luke tells the story of Jesus, he positions him at the table. And for Jesus, in contrast to the culture of the day, which is where Jesus came in, Jesus didn't drop in at 2021. He came in at a very specific time in a specific cultural season for a specific situation in a specific cultural moment. And inside that, he took the culture and he introduced a new meal. Jesus's meal would actually represent a few things. The first thing that Jesus's meal would represent would be a new world. You see, from a Jewish mindset, the, uh, the idea of salvation wasn't necessarily about you getting transported or beamed out of here to some ethereal location, some mystical cloud somewhere where you would be playing a heart. They believed that God, through the Messiah, the Son of Man, the promised anointed one, the Christ, would come in and usher in a new world order, that God would come in and make everything right. And this inbreaking of this new world was the embodiment of a new creation, a, a new way to look at relationships, a new way to look at the culture, a new way to look at the table. And this new world would bring about that new outlook. I mean, if you think about the way that you uh, look at things, you look at them primarily through the lens of the world that you've experienced. And Jesus, through his practice, not only his teaching, but his teaching combined with his practice, introduced a whole new way to see things based on a new world. And it all leads up to what we see is called the new kingdom. God is ushering in through Christ what he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand, it's happening. That right now, the kingdom of God is coming and it's moving in right here where we are. And we're still a part of that process. We're still here. And so when Jesus introduces this meal, when we find him at the table and he begins to confront and confound everything that was going on in the culture, he was sending a central message. And it was simply this, is that everyone has a seat at the table. And don't let that get lost on you because we live in America and we think, well, it's open. Freedom's open to everybody. We want everybody to be able to you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. That's not this culture. And it's not really ours either. That the distinguishing characteristics, whether it be race, socioeconomic class, I mean, let's not pretend, let's look around. Most everybody in here looks somewhat similar. Somewhat similar backgrounds, a few variations. Uh, we dress a little different perhaps, but it's all pretty much pretty close to the same. And what ends up happening with any group of people that comes in contrast and confrontation to Jesus's meal was the idea that the table was only for people just like you. And so Jesus confronts that. And the way we see it today is through an episode, a, a scene that happens, a confrontational scene with Jesus, followed by a parable of Jesus where Jesus drives home a point that everyone has a seat at the table. So let's look at confrontational Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verses one through 24. We're gonna just kind of skim over the story real quick and then we're gonna bear down on a few uh, central points. One Sabbath when Jesus went, <clears throat> I gotta clean my throat. When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So 
All the stuff I mentioned before, remember one Sabbath, he's on a Sabbath uh, day, and so he's positioned in this home uh, with these Pharisees, and we'd have to assume that there's not just one Pharisee, but there's a, a head Pharisee, a prominent one, uh, and he's invited the other Pharisees. Another kind of cultural nuance in this is typically the way that you would share table with other people was they would be in a, uh, in a guild or a, a similar field, so like let's just say that you're a Let's say you're a plumber, okay? Uh, and uh, you would have uh, a dinner with all the other plumbers and you would form what's kind of like a union, you know, like a union. Uh, you would come together, make decisions together. You'd lobby for each other, protect one another and, and communicate together as one voice and those kind of things. Well, what you probably have here is that same type of approach uh, for the Pharisees. And for the Pharisees, uh, it was particular uh, interesting because their, their role was to act as some somewhat of what you would call maybe like the, the gatekeepers or somewhat of like the police a little bit uh, of the Jewish law. And so they wouldn't just try to keep it themselves. They would try to observe within the community, are people keeping it or are they not? And they would try to offer correction for that because they were trying to honor God. They weren't necessarily motivated by evil intent. They thought that they were honoring God by doing this, these devout acts of devotion. And so it it, it just lands on us, doesn't it, that they're carefully watching Jesus. And so this whole thing is set up from the beginning. He's on a Sabbath, you're at a prominent Pharisee's house, and they're all observing Jesus. And this all started way back in Luke's gospel. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter six, verse seven, just real quick, it, it tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. They were looking for a way to get to Jesus because they saw what he was teaching and what he was doing. They saw that he was garnering a following and it became to threaten not just their position, but in their mind, it was threatening the very understanding of who God was, that Jesus was marching around and he was telling everybody, this is who God was and this is what he's like. And he was doing it in confrontation and direct conflict with the keeping of the Sabbath, which was the identity marker for them. This is what you do because this is who you are. And Jesus was constantly healing people on the Sabbath. And so in this situation, they're watching Jesus. He's at a table and something really interesting happens in the story. Watch what happens in Luke 14 too. There in front of him, in front of Jesus, was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. It, it's a little bit suspicious, is it not? That if the table was designed for who was in and who was out, if the table was designed for certain groups of people to come together and it was a distinction to say where you were on the social ladder, why would there be a person that was suffering from a, a malady, uh, uh, something wrong with their body at the pharisaical table at this banquet? Well, logic would tell you, it help you to deduce that more than likely what happened was he was planted there. They were looking to trap Jesus, but as Jesus is so, uh, so often does, he's genius, and so he outsmarts them, and he gets to the heart because he knows why he's there. And he takes this opportunity to a man that they were using as a pawn in their game, in their ploy to trap Jesus, to accuse him, 
to bring him in front uh, and try him in front of everyone and to basically defame his name to, uh, to kind of derail this meteoric rise of this would-be Messiah. They had their opportunity. They had the stage set and Jesus outsmarts them all and he asked the question out loud that they were all asking of him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They didn't answer his question because they didn't know what to say and so what does Jesus do? He, they, he reaches out he takes hold of the man and he touches this man that would have been a defiling act and then he healed him and he sent him on his way and then Jesus gets down to business. After the man leaves, he turns to them in verse five to everyone left in the room and he asks them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. They were confronted with their own hypocrisy. They were confronted with their own blind spot, perhaps, where they thought one thing and they were confronted with the truth of who they really were and what was really motivating him. And in this moment, Jesus steps one step farther. He doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just leave it on the healing because he saw something in the room that he had to confront and it had everything to do with who is out the table and who got to sit at the table. Watch what happens in Luke 14, seven. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So they weren't expecting this, but what Jesus saw was something that they were not actually even really aware of. It was something that was like the air they breathed. This is just the way that they operate. Uh, we'll get more into it over the course of the series, but the way that the table would be positioned was there would obviously be a place of honor uh, in our society, in our culture. Sometimes that's the head of the table uh, and it would be uh, at the front uh, of the table. Um, but if, if you could take that idea of that real quick, uh, what Jesus is really pointing out here is he's saying, I watched how everybody was trying to find their seat and how everybody was trying to get to the head of the table. They were trying to get as close as they could to the person of honor, the person, the prominent Pharisee perhaps that had invited them to the banquet. And he, he likens it to the idea of trying to strategically position yourself to elevate yourself. Uh, probably, maybe like an illustration would help. Let's just say that the, uh, this is a wedding reception today and this is the head table. And uh, you've been invited because uh, you uh, got a new job and your boss just invited everybody in the company, all right? And so he, he, you got an invite. Uh, it was through email, so it wasn't necessarily that special, but you, you showed up because uh, you wanna make a good impression with the boss. You walk in and at the head table, you've got uh, the bride and the groom and you've got the family and the best men and, all, and, and the bridesmaids and all that and they're up front. And you notice when you walk in that there's a chair that's empty. And so you say, well, hey, look, I, there's a spot. It looks like a pretty good spot. I'll go up there and I'll sit at the head of the table. And so you make your way up here in front of everybody and you sit down and everybody's asking, everybody's looking at you saying, well, who is that? Who's that person that's sitting up there at the table? What, what's she about? What's he about? And then what happens is your boss comes over and he can't remember your name. He taps you on the shoulder, hey, hey, what's your name again? And you tell, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the new guy, right? I, I, I just started a month ago. And he's like, yeah, you're, you're supposed to sit back there. This is not for you. And he kicks you out of the table. 
Now, that's the walk of shame, right? Like you came in, you walked up to the front, now you're being kicked out and you've got to go in the eyes of everybody and move to the back, see, back, you know, way back in the back. And that's kind of the picture, right? I mean, we look at that and like, well, that's crazy, right? But that's exactly kind of the picture that Jesus paints because he tells them this parable about what they were all doing. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat, the walk of shame. But he goes on to say this, then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host come, he will say to you, friend, move up to the better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the guests for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, in an honor-shame culture where uh, the social hierarchy was such that uh, it was like you know, putting a stamp of approval on who you were. It was like, you know, wearing the name brand, driving the best car, uh, come and sit at the table because people would be talking about, hey, did you see who, who was at the table? I mean, did you see who was sitting at the front of the table? Jesus is saying that is a human, sinful, and broken motivation. And as you do that, what ends up happening is there's going to be a time when you're not exalted, even though you desired it, you will be humbled. But there's a different approach Jesus introduces with his new kingdom, his new world, his new outlook. And he says that if you approach relationships with humility, and what is humility? It's placing yourself under another in the way that Christ served us. That when we humble ourselves in the way that Christ humbled himself for us, then what ends up happening is then we are exalted, not from a selfish motivation or an arrogance-driven, pride-driven desire for fame and accolades and uh, constructing walls around ourselves, but instead we invite ourselves into the table at the lowest place. You know, uh, invitations are powerful um, to tables. I was was interested a few years ago, there was this... uh, there was a documentary that was released on Netflix and I didn't watch it, but I, I, read, a, um, I, I read an article about it. it was the, I think it was called the uh, Fry Festival. Um, it, was, uh, it was basically an island that these guys, they, they created a, this party and they promised all this stuff and they tried to get all these people to pay this money to go to this island and uh, a week full of decadence and all this stuff. And it went horribly bad. Um, but the way that they got people there was really interesting. They paid people uh, that were famous to tweet about it or to post about it or, you know, do videos about it. And one of the people that they paid was Kylie Jenner. They gave her $250,000. It was reported in this article to say that she was going to be at the festival. And so people saw her and said, well, I want to go where she is because she's famous and everybody wants to be in that crowd. And so it motivated all these people to go to this island to basically put on display that they were at the table with this group of people. And what ends up happening was it was all debunked. I mean, there was none of the stuff that they promised that was there and none of the stars that they said were gonna be there were there. And the people that were wanting to be exalted were humbled. And we can laugh at that and go like, oh, look at those people, those dumb people that spent all that money. But my concern is that that happens in the church all the time. It doesn't cost $250,000, it just costs our attendance, 
It, it, it causes our, our, our motivation for how we do things, how we make decisions and who we have sitting around us, how we view people that are different than us. And we think that we have to see eye to eye to sit shoulder to shoulder with people because we want to solidify our identity by who we're with. And Jesus comes in and he knocks down the walls that we've constructed at the table and he sends out invitations and he invites everyone to the table. So how does Jesus close this whole scenario out? Well, watch what he does. He says to his host, he turns on the host of the party. In front of everybody, he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. You said the way that it would typically work, it was a culture of reciprocity. And so basically I invite you to my party and then you invite me to yours. And you could see what happens is that circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller and people get farther and farther and farther away. And as you move up the corporate ladder or the social ladder or the economic ladder, all those other people, you become so nearsighted that you don't even see them anymore. And what do we do? We invite the people that we think can invite us back, that can benefit us on some level. And we don't even see the people that need to be invited that are not even in relationship with us yet, the people that the world would not look at, the people that Jesus would go sit with that would get him called names and people were confused about him, tax collectors, drunkards, sinners. And he says, I know this is what's motivating you, but instead, let's try a different approach under a new world, a new outlook and a new kingdom. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, this would have been a tense moment, wouldn't it? Have you ever been at a party and it was a tense moment? But this is like super tense, right? Because this is a formal environment. Jesus is there. He's trapped them. And now he's calling the host out and he's now calling out all the guests. So he's basically confronting everybody in the room in a moment. And you probably could have heard a pin drop. And in the silence and the awkwardness and the tension, you get this one voice crying out from the back. And this is what this guy says. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now that seems very pious, right? It's kind of like, to me, I don't know what his motivation was, but I know that Luke included this for a reason. There's no accident. Luke knew what he was doing. And Luke was pointing to something that I think he reconciles at the end of the passage, but he, he kind of puts a spotlight on this guy and that steps into the awkwardness, you know, into the tense moment. And because in this moment, something that gets lost on us was something that would not be lost on them. You see, this feast in the kingdom of God was the theme from Genesis all the way for us, even to Revelation, but it was also a Jewish theme that there would have been a feast for the kingdom of God. And one of their most famous prophets gives a quick summary of it in Isaiah 25. And this is important. Isaiah 25 says this, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for who? For all people. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Yes, it's a Baptist church, but I just said it, finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations. 
He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. You see, the Israelites would have held on to this as their promise. And this guy at the banquet, Jesus is confronting everybody and he's just trying to kind of bring everybody together. Yes, but at the end of the day, there's gonna be a feast where everybody is there. Well, how is Jesus going to respond to this culturally appropriate response into the awkwardness? Well, watch what Jesus does. Jesus replies, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent out his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Now this is confusing to us because typically when we announce something, people put it on their Google calendar or in their iPhone or whatever. And they say this is, and they have notifications and they plan around it, stuff like that. Well, culturally speaking, they didn't have Google uh, calendars and those type of things. And they didn't have other things like refrigeration or they didn't have necessarily all the food gathered and they couldn't just run and down to the store or Dollar General and get some extra cups and all those kind of things. What did they have to do? Well, they had to send out an invitation and say, hey, listen, you know, um, sometime in August, we're gonna have this feast together. We're gonna go into a time of preparation and we're gonna gather all the things. And once everything is prepared and ready, then we'll send out the second invitation and let you know, and that's your cue to come to the party. And so what's happened here in Jesus' story to this awkward moment, he says, there's a, there's a certain man sent this thing out. He'd been planning this big banquet and he invited all these people. And then the man arrives, a servant arrives and he said, now it's time. But something that would have been a culturally inappropriate and offensive thing happened. And they would have all gasped as this. In verse 18, they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married and so I can't come. This would have been uh, very offensive to the person that had invited them, uh, given the ancient rites of hospitality. They were coming up with excuses. And there's nothing evil in here, is there? There's nothing like, hey, you know, well, I got thrown in jail, so I can't be there, or, you know, I've got a drug deal going down, or, you know, anything like that. No, what's happening here is simply excuses. And the excuses then would have caused a gasp, but in our culture, we give excuses for everything. Like excuses for us, they don't really mean anything. We offer them and, it, and you know, whether it's texting, now texting is really easy because you can just shoot a text and say, I'm not coming. You don't even have to do it face to face anymore. Everything for us is kind of up in the air. Well, should we, should we not? Can we, can we not? And so our, in our culture, excuses are a little bit more palatable, but in their culture, this would have been highly offensive, highly offensive. And so receiving these excuses, the servant has to come back and tell the person planning the banquet this news. And that's what happens in verse 21. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and the alleys into the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And then he goes on to say this. He takes that theme and he says, sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has already been done, but there's still room. And then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. 
I love that word compel because uh, it, it's a little bit different than an invitation. An invitation says, hey, it's ready. Uh, to compel someone means to employ, uh, to, to implore them to come. It, it means that you're on the edge, it's creative. And, and to compel someone is really unique to the individual. If you think about it, what may be compelling to you may not be compelling to someone else and vice versa. And so what the, the banquet uh, uh, host is saying, he said, I want you to go out to all these people that are blind, broken, and hurting. I want you to go to the outsider. I want you to go past the insider. I want you to go past the short guest list and I want you to go all the way out and I want you to find people and not only do I want you to find them and not only want you to just throw an invitation at them, I want you to get into a conversation and compel them. I want you to get to know them and what makes them tick and I want you to invite them into my banquet, into my kingdom, into my world to have this outlook. I want you to go out and compel them. The word compel is not an emotionally neutral position. Uh, I, I've told the story for years, um, and uh, that, that kind of gets to the heart of emotional neutrality to me. Uh, when Veronica and I were first married, and uh, we were serving in a church uh, in Mark Tree, uh, she was children's minister, and I was a youth minister uh, at this church. And uh, what we would do, I was bivocational for like 12 years, and for several years, we would drive back and forth on Wednesdays and on weekends and stuff like that, and uh, we did that for a number of years, and on the afternoons after the service, we would hang out at the parsonage with the pastor, and we would eat lunch, and then we would just talk about church and life, and the kids were small at the time. I didn't even, we didn't even have our other kids yet. I think uh, Cameron was probably about two years old, and they had, they had a son uh, that was probably about a year older or something like that, uh, and he had a little bit of a speech impediment. Uh, at that age, he talks perfectly clear now uh, in his 20s, but back then, uh, it was kind of hard to understand him and stuff like that, but we would finish lunch, and they would go off to play, and the adults would sit at the table and we talk. And uh, this particular Sunday, uh, the little boy, he came to the table and he did the typical thing where he's pulling on mom's, uh, you know, arm and shirt and stuff like that. And she's doing the typical mom thing where she's saying, not right now, you're, this is inappropriate, you're interrupting, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he is insistent and he won't let her, uh, let her go. And finally, she did that thing where she goes, okay, Ryan, what is it? And he said two words. He said, Cammy Van. That's the only thing we could make out. Now, Cammie is what we talk, called Cameron when she was little. And so we, you know, our ears perked up. And he said, Van, and that makes your ears perk up, right? And we look over and Cammie, Cameron, is nowhere around and the door's open. And you know what we did? We had a meeting for about 30 minutes. We sit down and we talked about all the reasons why perhaps she couldn't be found. We, talk, we, had a, we had a meeting for another 30 minutes and talked about a plan to go find her and who should go find her and what route we should take. No, we didn't do any of that. We all hopped up from the table in unison and we ran out the door to find Cammie because it was not an emotionally neutral situation. There, there was someone that was supposed to be at the table, somebody that was supposed to be at the house, someone was supposed to be inside that was outside and we had to go find her. And she's safe now, okay, she's married, she's doing well, she's got a job, going to school, all that kind of stuff. But there was a moment when there was not an emotionally neutral response. And I think the word compel 
needs to be recaptured by us because this is Jesus telling his story about someone that's not emotionally neutral about who's not here. It's very easy to be consumed with who's already here and say, well, if they, knew, they know where we are and they should come here to where we are, if they want it, they can, ha- they can have it because just like I had, I had to make steps and they should have to make steps or we can go out to where they are. See, this is not about moving people into your home and saying, hey, come in and let's just kind of shake up everything in our house. No, this is actually going out to where they are and learning how to have a conversation of what compels this person and what drives them. And that takes time. That takes sacrifice. It's on their turf. It starts on their turf, not ours. And that's where the invitation begins. Because it seems as if what Jesus is primarily concerned about is not who's already here and who's already accepted, but about who has not, who doesn't even know that they're invited. And it comes back to a central truth is that if you want a bigger table, if you want a bigger table, it's gonna take, or a bigger party, it's gonna take a longer guest list. You know, when you typically talk about inviting people to Jesus, I feel like what we normally think of is like everybody we know. And yes, you should invite people you know to Jesus. You should welcome them. You should love them. But what you see in Jesus all the time is him pushing the boundaries around the table. Because it's easy to sit with people that you already have the same interest with, right? Who already think like you. It's easy for us to surround ourselves with people that we already think believe what we believe. And what is happening in our culture with the church is we are constructing walls and Jesus has stepped in and he said, I wanna blow out the walls and I wanna send out the invitations. And then Jesus finishes his whole episode with these people. What a day, man, what a day when you love to have been there by changing from a story and he moves to first person. And this is the exclamation point, this one verse, this one statement from Jesus. He says in first person, I tell you not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Jesus simultaneously moves himself into position into the story of the one that's hosting the banquet. And simultaneously in a Jewish mindset, is tying himself in to the one that was promised for the ultimate banquet. And Jesus is constructing a table and he's pulling up chairs and he's sending out invitations and he's saying, this is what my church, this is what my people are supposed to look like. And so often I think for us, it gets lost on us. I know college students in the room, uh, there's gonna be a, Uh, there's going to be a push for those of you that are new to find a place to fit in. And you want to find somebody you can connect with. And we've all been there, okay? Um, And this is not just unique to you, but I think it's timely. You'll want to get to be around people that want you there. But a lot of times what people want when they want you there is they want you to like what they like and do what they do. And you lose yourself in the process. And you become somebody you never thought you'd become and do things you'd never thought you'd do. And it's all because you want a seat at the table. And some of you in your 30s are doing the exact same thing on your jobs with the neighborhood you're trying to get in or out of. And some of us are doing it in church. 
where we went church to look a certain way and we want it to look like what we think it should look like and we want to sing the songs that we think we should sing and we want it to be structured the way we think it should structure and we want the people around us we think should be around us. And Jesus comes into all those situations and he knocks down the walls, he sends out invitations and he pulls up some chairs and he promises that his banquet is better. His party is better. And so what does that mean for us? Well, three quick applications. The first one I'm gonna ask you is this, is I'm gonna ask you first to come to the table. I want you to know that you have a seat at the table at Jesus' table, not necessarily this one. (laughs) There's only six places there. His is a lot bigger. He wants you to come to the table knowing you have a place. And some of you have felt on the outskirts because of uh, like evangelical church or maybe a past church experience or maybe all the, I don't know what it is, but you don't think that you have a place with God. And God through Jesus moved heaven and earth to come and take down all the barriers. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he took your sin. That's why he allowed himself to take the blows and he overcame sin and death for you to knock down those walls, anything that would obstruct you from knowing him so that you could know him and you could know who you are and you could be at the table full of fulfillment in a joyful place and that you could come to the table. And so I want you to know you have a place with Jesus if you'll come to the table and accept the invitation. The other thing I wanna ask you with coming to the table is um, this is kind of a, a timely thing for us. Uh, we've been talking as a staff and leadership and praying and we, we were really pushing into this fall thinking, well, we're gonna do all this. We're gonna have Journey Kids at 1045 and we're gonna do this, that and the other. And man, we just kept hitting a, a wall with that. And then we started to sense um, that maybe what God was doing was something new, something different. That what he wanted to do is he wanted to bring this church together around a common table. He wanted to bring us together, uh, not in two services, but in one service for a season so that we could relearn perhaps what he may be calling us to do and to be and that he could unify us around his table and help us to reach outside these walls and lead us into places we might not have ever considered. And so on September 12th, we've kind of surveyed a lot of our leadership and tried to ask a lot of different people. And uh, the the response has been overwhelmingly positive that on September 12th, what we're gonna do is we're gonna move to one service for a season. And we're gonna come together and this is gonna make a change for some of you. We're gonna come together at nine o'clock and we're gonna combine the nine and the 1045 services at nine o'clock so that we can come around God's word and we could worship in his presence together and we could see what God may be saying to his people here. And we'll follow that up with a group's hour. All the details are gonna be coming out uh, later this week on Thursday of this week. So if you don't typically read emails, if you don't watch videos we send out, if just for one week, I'm gonna ask you to do it this week, um, on Thursday, be looking for that because we're gonna unpack the details. I know that opens up a lot of questions, but we're gonna try to uh, explore what God may be doing by moving to one service on Sundays for this season. The second thing I'm gonna ask you to do is to find your seat at the table, to find your seat at the table. Um, Now, with the groups hour, I was mentioning that is we don't want you to just come in and worship. We want you to find a place to plug in. And so we're gonna try to open up for that for college students and high school students and junior high students that Wednesday night, you've got that opportunity as well. And then finally, I wanna ask you this question. 
who will you invite to the table? Um, and not the short list of the people you already know, definitely do that, um, but think about the people that would never be on your list, the people that are different than you, the people that think differently than you, believe differently than you, look different than you, all those things. And what if we were to say, God is so good, God is so great that he could bring us together around the table and he could open it up so that other people could enjoy what it's like to be at his banquet. All right, we're gonna sing one final song. I'm gonna pray for us before we do, and then we'll finish up. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. We thank you, God, uh, that you opened up a table for us. And Lord, wherever you take us as individuals and as a church, we're open for it. Uh, we're asking, God, that you speak to us and you move in our lives. And uh, Lord, we receive that. So Lord, teach us, uh, help us to be aware of our blind spots. We want people to see how great you are and we want to live for you. And so we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand on our feet and let's sing as we finish up.